I'm your host, Leo Cardoza. My guest today, uh, owner of the, the Liquor Store and Wine Loft in Jackson Hole and host of the Jackson Hole Connection podcast is Stefan Abrams. Stefan, thank you for joining me. Leo, it's a pleasure. And I'm really excited to learn more about liquid history today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is a podcast that is uh, an excuse to that uses, uses history as a pretense to get wine drunk. Um, and today we're going to talk about Chateau Neuf de Pop. So you have obviously been in the beverage industry for quite some time. Um, you're fairly familiar with Chateau Neuf as a wine region. Um, but how familiar are you with how Chateau Neuf got its name? Honestly, I have not invested the time into understanding the history of that wine region at all. I probably haven't invested enough time in learning history of enough of any wine regions to be honest <laughs> i that's that's why i created this show that's that's why we're here um so as you know and for anybody listening to this who's maybe not as familiar with uh chateauneuf chateauneuf is a wine growing region in southern france uh the area itself is just north of avignon it sits on the rhone river uh produces both red and white wines predominantly red wines um, and the red wines are, there are actually 13 uh, grape varieties in total, and I'm not going to list them all right now. Um, the red wines of Chateauneuf are predominantly made out of uh, Grenache, uh, and then uh, Syrah and Morved, uh, probably the next two after that. But um, but basically the kind of, um, the, the top tier wine growing region of, uh, of Southern France. Um, and the region, uh, the, the name of the region, Chateau Neuf de Pop, literally translates as the Pope's new house, the Pope's new chateau. Uh, and it got that name when uh, you'll notice that uh, Avignon is decidedly not in Italy, uh, which is where the Vatican is located and the city that we normally associate with the Pope. Um, but there was a time when the Pope actually lived in a now ruined castle. Um, there's a village called Chateauneuf de Pop um, where the, the remains of the castle still exist, but it's basically just two, two walls sitting on a hillside. But this whole story goes back to uh, the Papal Schism or the Great Western Schism of the 14th century. Uh, so do you anywhere back in your memory recall ever hearing about a time when there were two popes? No, I didn't, I didn't know uh, there were two popes. There were more than two, um, which I didn't know that could be. Um, there was enough space yeah, in the world of papalhood, yeah, to have two popes. <laughs> yeah, they didn't like each other. They were not. That makes more not, sense. Yeah, they were not friends. <laughs> um, but so before we get to the part about there being two popes, we have to get to uh, the part about uh, the pope uh, leaving Rome and and going to Avignon. Um, and so we're actually going to start at the end of the 13th century. So. In 1294, uh, oh, what are you what are you drinking, by the way? Uh, it is Piedlong. It is one of the uh, wines imported by Kermit Lynch. And where's the camera? There we go. Oh, nice. Yeah. I think this is part of the Vouv Telegraph family. That certainly does look like their yeah. uh, their font work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's one of their second labels. So I'm pretty excited about it. I haven't had this one yet. I opened it about an hour ago, though. So it should be nice and open. Um, I've got a uh, 2017 uh, Maison Laberteau. 
uh, which is a nice entry level little chef nook. Um, so in 1294 um, was the papal coronation of Celestine V. But he was an older dude when he took the seat and it turns out that poping is hard. Um, and so after five months on the job, he was like, yeah, I don't want to. And he decided to step down and retire. He just kind of wanted to go off and, and be a hermit. Um, and he didn't accomplish month, much, obviously, in, in only five months. But the, one of the only and last things that he did was confirming the Pope's right to abdicate. Uh, so he basically, like, one week was like, hey, just so everybody knows, I want to make it public just in case this comes up at any point in the future that um, a pope is totally allowed to decide that he doesn't want to be the pope anymore. That's that's in the rules now. And then he waits like a week and he's like, yeah, by the way, I don't want to be a pope anymore. <laughs> I think it's great how when you're at the status of pope, you can make a lot of rules. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a lot of rulemaking, which is at the core of a lot of the uh, trouble, um, a lot of the tension that comes up in this story. So Celestine V is replaced by Pope Boniface VIII, uh, who was never particularly popular. Nobody really liked him as a person or as a Pope. Um, and he was generally kind of paranoid that Celestine might uh, basically come out of retirement to kick him out of the Pope chair. Um, which Celestine didn't want to do, but there were other powers within the church that totally would have wanted to have, uh, to have Celestine, just use Celestine as a pawn to do exactly that. Um, so Boniface invited Celestine to go on a pilgrimage with him uh, to the Va Vatican, uh, to which Celestine initially agreed, but then uh, immediately came to fear for his life because Boniface was definitely going to try and kill him. Um, so he runs off into the woods for a couple of days, but then like Boniface sends his, like his, his uh, guards after him and tracks him down in the woods and brings him back. And uh, he ends up living under house arrest for uh, the rest of his life, which was only like 10 more months. Um, but this put into, is one of the factors that put into uh, motion this uh, continuing tension between uh, Pope Boniface and the and King Philip of France. So both of these men were extremely ambitious, uh, and they were both basically trying to make themselves the highest authority. Um, so the king wants to say that you know that the king is supreme over all religious leaders. The pope, of course, wants to say that religious leaders are supreme over royalty. Um, and so Boniface really wanted to like reignite the church because the church was kind of in decline at this point. And, uh, and Philip does not like that. Boniface passes two papal bulls saying that uh, one, uh, the Pope is supreme over all Kings and two, uh, the King cannot tax the clergy. And Philip didn't like that, obviously. Um, I don't blame him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Kings should totally be allowed to tax clergy. Like, come yeah. on. Um, so the people of, of France are very angry. And the other thing that's kind of weird about this story when you think about it is like the, the, the countries of Italy and France are nothing like uh, what we think of as, you know, two united countries. They're kind of these uh, individual um, kingdom city states. So like Avignon, even though it's in France, is not 
as much in France as it is now. It's kind of it, it's it's kind of weird. Um, but so King Philip and the the Pope uh, exchanged some harsh harsh words. Uh, the Pope excommunicated the king. Uh, the king uh, hires a guy, this guy, uh, Guillaume de Nogare, uh, to go to Italy to incite rebellion against the Pope. Nogare gets some Italian cardinals who don't like the Pope, and they just go to his house and kick his ass. <laughs> That's not nice to beat up on the religious leader. It's, That's just wrong. Like, the fact that I just... I am envisioning, I want this story to be a movie so badly <laughs> because just the idea of a bunch of guys in red cardinal robes going to the Pope's house, knocking on the door, just kicking his ass. And they beat him really badly. Like he died a month later from, from his injuries. Um, so yeah, they just, they, they, they beat him up. Uh, they dragged him out of his house. They paraded him on, uh, around town, uh, tied up backwards on a horse uh, to humiliate him, um, which ironically ended up um, kind of prolonging his life slightly because they then threw him in jail, but he was actually well-liked in the town where he, that he lived, uh, even though he wasn't very well-liked in the overall like papal territory. So the townsfolk actually broke into the town jail and, le and got the Pope out uh, and, and smuggled him back to Rome. Uh, but he, yeah, he still died uh, a month later. And so now we got to elect uh, a new Pope. So this is uh, only a couple of years and we're all, like, Popes are going in real heavy rotation uh, at, at, this, at this time period. Uh, they're just, they're turning over real quick. Um, so the Car College of Cardinals wants to pick somebody who's not going to, they want this like Pope King beef squashed. Um, they want to have, you know, they, they want somebody who's, who's not going to, be controversial or cause any waves. Um, they bring in uh, a guy who becomes Pope Benedict the Eleventh. Um, so he was expected to be, you know, pretty chill. Uh, and the first thing that he did was revoke those two papal bulls uh, from the guy before him uh, that said that you know that the king couldn't tax clergy and that the Pope was supreme over over all kings, which is definitely what the king. Uh, wanted him to do, but he also excommunicated uh, Guillaume de Nogare and all of the cardinals who were involved in beating the previous pope to death, which is fair. Sure. Like, I, you know. You just can't I, go I, around town beating up on people. Yeah, you can't. You, <laughs> Even back you, then. <laughs> if, you're, if you beat a pope to death, you're oh. not allowed to be in that religion anymore, and I think that's, I think that's fair. In religion, um, in there something that says thou shall not kill? In one of those religions, I don't remember which one it is. Yeah, something. It's yeah, someplace it's around there. Um, you, you mentioned something interesting about the borders of Italy and France, how it's not what we think of as today. Yeah. But I, I think that's with all of Europe. Yeah, it is. Those borders moved around, has moved, have moved around so much since the 1200s to, to where we are now. Yeah, so King Philip, who's the king of France, and like I said, a person born in Avignon at this at this time would consider themselves to be French, but they're not as much within the direct um, control uh, of King Philip, because um, King Philip is up um, in, uh, the, in Versailles, which is 
really far at this time in history, you know? Um, there's, you know, no bullet trains, obviously. Um, <laughs> no, not quite. So, I don't think there were bullets. Uh, Maybe. There might have been bullets. They were probably really slow. You could look. Oh, look, yeah. here comes a bullet. <laughs> yeah, it was those the those old, like, the, the very original guns that were, like, uh, octagonal shaped because they had to, like, pound the thing out and then form a thing around it. And um, they were probably really inconvenient to shoot. But so, like I said, I think it's pretty reasonable that those guys got excommunicated. But King Philip was like, nah, that's my boy, Guillaume. You can't excommunicate him. Um, and so there's another uh, rivalry brewing between uh, between King Philip and uh, Pope Benedict XI. Yeah, but then, yeah, uh, Benedict dies of dysentery. Um, according to one of the sources that I read for this, uh, he, he got he got dysentery uh, because of overindulgence in ripe figs. Has has that happened? I don't know. Hmm. Maybe. I don't like too much fruit and he got diarrhea or so. I don't know. Maybe but he had COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just, I read that and I was like, that is such a great little bit of detail. Death by figs. Mm. Um, so the next Pope coming up is some real, like how this comes about is some real like three dimensional chess stuff. So you've got the Italian faction and the French faction within the College of Cardinals. Um, and it had to have been something where it was like the, the vote needed to be more than a simple majority because neither side had enough power to just make a uni unilateral decision. Um, the, the head of the French faction was the Cardinal of Prato, uh, who none of the other Cardinals knew this, but he was actually working for the French king. So he proposes that the Italian side give a, give three options and then the French side get to choose one of those three. So he's like, that'll be the most fair thing. So you guys can pick from anybody in the whole kingdom, the whole realm, um, give us three guys and then we'll pick one of those three guys. And that's fair that way we've, you know, both had input. Um, but uh, he knows that or he knows with at least enough cer certainty that one of that based on the criteria that he gives them for who uh, who they're going to choose from one of their selections has to be this guy uh, Bertrand de Goth who is the archbishop bishop of Bordeaux now the Italians like this guy because uh, Bordeaux is actually ruled by the English king at this time so even though it's part of France and people of Bordeaux are French. They are under the rule of the King of England. Um, and uh, Bertrand de Goth had, uh, had beef with the, uh, the, king, the, the King of France's brother. They had a, a, a thing. So the Italians are then, like they're gonna pick him because He's because they assume based on that that he's not going to get along well with the French king. So because the Italians don't want a pope who's going to be in the king's pocket. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, because it's really it's it's really complicated and confusing. And there are so many people with just a you know a, a common name with a number after it. It's ridiculous. Um. So that's all. But that's like Cardinal Prado knows this as well. So as soon as Bert's name uh, go, gets thrown in the hat, um, 
the cardinal who is in the king's ear, the king of France's ear, goes to the king of France and he's like, okay, this guy is going to be the guy you need to go kick, kiss his ass. Um, and so the king starts kind of buttering up uh, Bertrand de Goff and they kind of come to an agreement and, and he's elected. Um, and the Italians realize after they've confirmed him that they have made a huge mistake. It's like the arrested development moment. Oh, we've made it. I've made a huge mistake. Um, because he announces that he's going to do his coronation in Lyon rather than in Rome. And they're like, ah, see, mm -hmm. I knew. Yeah, no, that's a, mm -hmm. uh, a problem. His, his coronation uh, was a major disaster. Um, all these people showed up to see the, the procession and, um, Apparently, there were so many people uh, on this one section of wall that the wall collapsed and a bunch of people were crushed. Um, people were killed. And um, he, in 1309, moves the papal curia to Avignon, to, uh, to Avignon. Avignon was, at this time, part of the Countship of Provence. It was actually ruled by the King of Naples. Which is very, mm. yeah, it's very confusing. Um, in 1348, the papacy bought Avignon from the King of Naples, and it remained papal territory um, until 17, uh, 1791, when it was finally united with France. Um, so this this pope, this first pope, um, erected. Which have you been to Avignon or seen pictures of the town itself? No. So um, there's still this really beautiful, um, like fortified wall uh, around the old part of the city, um, and there's basically one road that goes all the way uh, around the outside of town, um, that uh, that was built by the uh, Clement the Sixth, which is the the papal name of uh, Bertrand de Goff. Um, seven popes. Uh, served uh, while the papacy was while the seat was in Avignon um, and I won't go into detail about all of the, the different popes but the actual castle uh, of Chateauneuf was erected by the second Avignon Pope John the 22nd um, and I only mention that because there's another detail about his reign uh, when the Holy Roman Emperor uh, who, of course, was in Rome, or could have been, I think Rome also ruled part of what is now Germany at this at this time. Um, and there's so much, like, incest and stuff between all the religious families and all the, uh, the uh, royal families. Um, but there was, at, at one point, the Holy Roman Emperor got into a fight with uh, John the 22nd and installed an anti-pope in Rome. Um, so the, when we get to this multi-pope thing, it's not the first time it's happened. It's just the biggest it ever happens. Um, so we get to the latter part of the 14th century, uh, 13, uh, 1370, I think. Um, we're on to Pope Urban V. So he attempts to return the papal seat to Rome. Uh, and he generally seems like he was a pretty good guy. He didn't, uh, wasn't big on, um, you know, putting all of his relatives into positions of power and he, mo most of what he did was spend money uh sp spending the church's money actually repairing the church and not trying to you know be corrupt or or anything like that so seems like a pretty good dude um 
one of my favorite stories that I read about him is at one point, uh, the abbot of St. Paul sent him a bribe because the abbot wanted to be made a cardinal. And the Pope said, okay. And he took the money um, and he used the money to repair the church. And then he just left the abbot where he was and didn't make him a cardinal. <laughs> and there was just nothing you could do about it. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> What's he going to be? Hey, hey, I paid you. You're yeah, supposed you to. You're going to call him out that you, you bribed him? You didn't him? do that thing I bribed you to do. Right. <laughs> and um, you mentioned so, how incestual everything was. I think a lot of times they had alliances married alliances to keep um so they would have um support for you know any type of wars or yeah 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 and a to lot acquire of it, and, more land yeah there's you know actual literal incest but there's also just so much inner workings of you know this uh this cardinal's brother is the duke of this thing or whatever um, so it's, you know, it's a very small number of families basically ruling all of Europe at this point. Um, so Urban did retain, so part of the reason, a lot of the Cardinals really liked having the Curia in Avignon because Avignon was much nicer. The, the papal residence was brand new, all of the stuff, the Vatican, everything in Rome, like all of the papal, uh, buildings, property in Rome were old and hadn't been kept up very well um and rome was incredibly just busy and dirty and crime ridden and uh and so a lot of the people involved in this story wanted the the seat to stay in avignon and it's just the fact that it's you know um that rome is the the ancestral home of it that was, seems to have been kind of the driving force to move it back um and so urban did succeed in returning it to rome uh, but he only stayed there for uh, a couple of years. So he, he he moved back to Rome, but I guess didn't officially move the seat back. Um, so he lived in Rome for a couple of years, didn't like it there, eventually moved back to Avignon, which is where he passed away uh, in 1370. His successor, uh, Gregory the uh, Gregory the 11th, uh, returns the Curia to Rome, and everybody's like, oh, thank God. Finally, that's over. We can all take a deep breath. All that drama is over. And the drama super was not over. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So first of all, uh, prior to uh, returning the Curia to Rome, Pope Gregory had attempted to annex additional uh, papal territory from the kingdom of Florence. Uh, the nobles of Florence did not like the Pope coming in and taking their territory. So they organized a resistance uh, and infiltrated some of the other papal states to try and sow insurrection against Pope Gregory. Um, Gregory sends his Pope army because the Pope has an army um, to Florence, but the Pope's army is mercenaries. So the people of Florence just bribe the leaders of the, of the Pope's army. And they're like, Hmm. okay, we're your army now. (laughs) And, uh, you know, po- the, the Pope, of course, excommunicates uh, all the leaders of the, rebe- the rebellion, most of the, the Florentine nobility. Um, my favorite part about that is that one of the dukes, uh, a guy named Bernabo Visconti, was so mad when he got his excommunication letter because, of course, the, the Pope has to send a physical per- an actual person with a physical letter 
with a wax seal and everything to say, hey, you're excommunicated. And Bernabo Visconti was so mad that he took the papal emissary hostage for two days um, and forced him to eat the letter. Hmm. <laughs> wax seal and all. Um, so, and that, that war actually was going, like, went on for, for years with uh, Pope Gregory trying to basically steal territory from Florence. Uh, but he dies in uh, March of 1378, and the, that whole thing kind of fizzles out. Um, so 1378 is the first time that the College of Cardinals has met in Rome in 70 years. They meet at the Lateran Palace to elect a new pope. Um, but as you can probably guess, the people of Italy had not been great fans of having French popes in France. Uh, they wanted the they wanted an Italian pope back in Rome. Um, so on the day of the election, they take advantage of the fact that the cardinals are meeting in Rome and they break into the palace to demand uh, a Roman pope. Uh, the cardinals were already going to do that, but rather than saying, yeah, that's what we're going to do, they're like, you don't tell us what to do! <laughs> Um, and that, of course, makes the mob even more furious. Uh, the mob is, you know, convinced that the cardinals are uh, are going to pick somebody that they won't like. Uh, the mob proceeds to camp out in the palace overnight. Uh, they they break into the uh, the sanctuary and they drink all the sacramental wine. And once they've drunk all the sacramental wine, they've got a bunch of people. They've got people outside bringing them more booze. Uh, so they just <laughs> camp out, uh, like in the courtyard of this palace, um, chanting uh, Romano lo volemo o amanco italiano, which means we want a Roman or at least an Italian, which is like another one of my favorite parts about this story. You got to love a protest chant with a compromise in it. <laughs> Sounds like a big tailgating party. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, for, for popes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But so the popes managed to get the, the, the rabble kicked out by the next morning, but they know that this conversation is not over uh, and that they need to make uh, a decision. And like I said, the ar irony is they were planning on picking an Italian. Uh, so Cardinal Pedro de Luna had nominated uh, Bartolomeo Prignano, who is as Italian in his, as his name sounds. And uh, DeLuna, like, you know, stuck up, stuck, stuck up for this guy. He's like, he's a learned and godly man, and he's never done it or whatever the qualifications are for popes. Um, <laughs> but like I said, that whole, uh, you know, separate kingdom city-state thing, uh, they're worried that, the, and this is part of the reason that they didn't want to tell the crowd who it was, um, because he's not Roman. He is Italian, but he's from Naples. Um, so and he and he's the uh, the Archbishop of Bari, which is the capital of Puglia. So they're like, I don't, you know, they're worried that he's definitely not as bad as what the crowd thought was going to happen. But the the Cardinals are still like they're still trying to keep it under wraps. So they decide on him. They send him off to the Vatican to get fitted for his hat or whatever. Um, and one of the Cardinals goes to tell the crowd that they picked somebody because the crowd has come back. Um, but he still won't tell them who. <laughs> so, of course, again, they're like, they're, they assume that means it's not an Italian. They all lose their shit again. And this time it's way more violent. 
So the first night, not a lot of people showed up armed. They weren't, you know, showing up to do violence. Like some, some property was damaged, but they didn't come there with that in mind. Um, but the second night, they're like, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's go do some violence. <laughs> so they show up carrying like picks and axes and throwing rocks through windows. Um, and there had been a couple of presumptive candidates that everybody kind of knew about. Uh, one was a Frenchman named Jean de Bar, and he was the one that uh, I think the crowd mostly thought was like the, the Frenchman that they were going to pick that they were mad about. Uh, but there was another guy who everybody figured would be in the running uh, named uh, Francisco uh, Tebaldeschi. He was a cardinal. Uh, he was Roman. He would have been a great candidate, except he was 80. Um, and as they learned, so I don't know what the plan was here. It's very strange because they never intended on picking him, but like to calm the crowd down, they take Tebaldeschi, they just put him in Pope robes and shove him out in front of the people. And they're like, here he is, here's your Roman Pope. Um, and Tebaldeschi was both, sounds like senile and insane, um, and also didn't like this idea. Um, and so they shove him out uh, to, to greet the people and he starts like spitting on people and ranting about demons. And it doesn't, it doesn't go very well. Um, it doesn't seem very papal to no. go spit on your people. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so they get all this crap under control. Um, they get Prignano back and um, they, they crown him. So April 18th, 1378, uh, uh, Prignano is crowned Pope Urban the sixth. This is a, a quote uh, from one of the books that I read for this. Uh, the the book is called the The Age of the Great Western Schism, and I just really like this this quote. Um, on Saturday, April tenth, he was escorted by the cardinals to Saint Peter's, where he celebrated Mass. On the same day, the cardinals who had fled to, into the country came back and adored him, and on and the coronation was set for Easter, April eighteenth. When Arsini placed the papal crown upon his head, the cardinal, cardinals notified in the meantime their brethren in, in Avignon using these conclusive words. Since weighty matters are often misinterpreted through false reports, we notify you that freely and uncontrolled, we choose the Archbishop of Bari to succeed Gregory. Now, they sent that, and it's important because of what they're about to do. Um, and, and I, I read primarily two different sources for this. Um, and this, this Clinton Locke guy um, seems to feel uh, that what the, the Cardinals are about to do is kind of a dereliction of duty because they so clearly stated that, yes, this was a free choice. This is the guy that we wanted. Um, but not surprisingly, um, the other book, which is The Western Schism in 1378 by uh, uh, Charles River editors, um, says that the Cardinals immediately regretted their decision that uh, Pope Urban gets just rip shit drunk on his coronation night, try, starts trying to fight Cardinals and um, they get a, a preview an introduction to how bad, it, how bad his temper is, um, which becomes one of the hallmarks of, of his papacy. But he does institute a series of financial reforms. Uh, he says that the church will no longer accept donations from the public and that cardinals are not allowed to accept money or salary from anybody but the church. Uh, so that they're basically not allowed to, you know, be in the pocket of, of air, the aristocracy. Um, and the, but, but he, 
but all the Cardinals did, like I said, they wanted to move back to Avignon, Avignon because Rome was old and dirty and gross and they kept having angry mobs. Um, <clears throat> so these Cardinals who do not like the choice that they have made, uh, within a couple of months, they go on a, uh, what's supposed to be a pilgrimage retreat to France. Um, and the Cardinal, so the Cardinals all meet up in France. They agree that they're going to declare his election null and void and claim that they were intimidated by the mobs of Rome uh, and that they just, you know, they're uh, just do over. Never mind, do over. Um, they send a letter to the Vatican, uh, which is another one of my just, I love this move. They send a letter to the Vatican telling the Pope he's not the Pope anymore. And they're like, and if that's an issue, you can come visit us in Avignon and we can talk about it. Sounds <laughs> and, like a, a modern day warranty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the Pope is obviously not stupid and doesn't want to get murdered, so he doesn't go. Um, so they, um, they install another Pope. Um, Pope Clement VII uh, was installed in Avignon, and that's actually the beginning of the schism. So now we're now we're on a dual Pope situation. <clears throat> so of course, as you would expect, both Popes immediately excommunicate each other. Um, really dramatic for for all of Europe. You know, basically every uh, every country's got to pick a side. Um, pope. Urban uh, in Rome continues being uh, a general garbage person uh, and pissing off both people within the church and uh, royals around him. A couple of years into the schism, the University of Paris theology department uh, decides that they're going to try and figure it out. And what they want to do is put together an impartial forum so everybody can talk and, you know, it doesn't have to be a blame excommunicating thing. Just let's, you know, let's, let's solve this. But um, the King of France at this time, Charles the sixth, he doesn't like that idea because he figures if you're the university of Paris theology department, you guys should just automatically side with the French Pope um, and not be impartial at all. And the academics tried to uh, be like, nah, and ignore the King for a little bit. And then they started having troubles with the law. Uh, it's hard to believe. I can't yeah. believe it. No. Weird. Yeah. yeah weird that, uh, uh, that uh, an all-powerful uh, royal person would, would use uh, uh, scare tactics and, and thugs to get somebody to do what, uh, what he wanted them to do. So they just kind of let the subject drop for, for a bit, but they'll come back around to it. Um, <clears throat> so Urban... Uh, like I said, still just pissing people off left, right, and center. Um, he uh, he gets into a fight with the Queen of Naples, who had originally been a supporter of his. Um, they're in a fight. He deposes her. He puts one of his stooges, one of his nephews, uh, in place, and uh, so he becomes so his nephew becomes Charles the uh, Third of Naples, uh, and then he manages to piss off his nephew. <laughs> um, in 1385, one of the Pope's other nephews, so not the one who's the King of Naples, a different nephew, broke into a nunnery and sexually assaulted a nun. So his cousin, King Charles III. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. Like, don't do that. And you think the Catholic Church has problems now? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, the problems nowadays are nothing compared to what they've been through. So the king has him uh, up in front of court to uh, to get you know his punishment for doing that. Um, the pope appeals to the king and asks for leniency because of quote the boy's age. Um, this is a forty-year-old man. The pope's like he's so young. Gosh, <laughs> just sickening. <laughs> so I need a glass of wine. <laughs> Ten years into the schism, thirteen eighty-nine, Pope Urban dies, and this whole ten years, people were basically assuming that once one of these guys died, that would be it. That they would just be like, okay, whichever one of you didn't die, you're the real pope now, and uh, we're you know, and and this thing is over. Um, but. A month after he died, the College of Cardinals in Rome names another pope, um, and they picked a young guy. Uh, this guy, Pietro Tomicelli, who is crowned Pope Boniface IX. Um, so the Roman cardinals are doubling down. They're like, no, we're not just going to let you, you know, de facto win because our guy died. We're picking a new guy. Um Five years after that, uh, Clement dies in Avignon. Uh, this is 1394. Uh, two weeks later, and again, same thing. They're like, okay, is this, is this the end? Are you guys going to do another guy? And they did. They actually uh, appointed Pedro de Luna, who was the guy who had, uh, had suggested Pope Urban, uh, the guy who kind of started this whole problem. Um, so Pedro de Luna uh, is crowned Benedict the... God, Roman numerals. Benedict the Thirteenth. So we've got Boniface uh, the Ninth in Rome. Benedict the Thirteenth in Avignon. Boniface has his work cut out for him because Urban was garbage, uh, and he starts working really hard to fix all the damage, like the repair relationships. Um, he he did a lot of work to get the church back on the right financial footing by uh, basically um, inventing televangelism. Uh, he's he tells people that uh, you can, instead of, if you were planning on, on taking a pilgrimage to Rome, instead of doing that, you can just send us whatever amount of money you were planning on spending on, a, on taking a pilgrimage to Rome and you get the same forgiveness or whatever. Um, pay for the forgiveness. Yeah. Pay yeah. for the forgiveness. <laughs> uh, so... 1395, the University of Paris Theology Department uh, again starts trying to work on the problem. And this time, um, the king didn't seem opposed. Uh, I'm not, I, I didn't know why, but so they, they published this idea uh, and they're, so they, they kind of go public with it and start sending uh, letters out to people to find support for this idea. Their idea is both popes should just resign and the Vatican should choose a new pope. Uh, but that would first of all, require them to both agree to resign. And second of all, one of them would have to do it first, which was not going to happen. Uh, and they couldn't get support for this idea, but uh, so they uh, write and publish a letter uh, outlining the idea and all the other universities tell them that it's stupid and it won't work. And they finally drop the idea of getting them to resign, but they're still like, okay, but can we just all, can we have a meeting can we just have a meeting and talk about this for the love of God? This is ridiculous. And they start trying to figure out a way to actually depose both of the popes. 
it takes a couple of years, but uh, in 1398, they decide that they are going to officially withdraw their obedience to the French Pope. Uh, and it was announced that any clergy remaining loyal to Benedict would have their property seized and all re revenue to their benefices would be stopped. Um, and then any non-French uh, uh, clergy just weren't allowed to be clergy in France anymore. And Benedict uh, the 13th was not very popular anyway. He had already lost a lot of his support. Um, and a delegation is sent to him telling him that he can either resign in peace or all of his assets will be frozen uh, and he'll be forcibly deposed. So he said, first he says he'll die uh, before he gives up his seat. And at this point, there's only five cardinals left that are on his side. Uh, but he manages to stay in his seat for five years after this because... <laughs> Uh, first, the king sends an army to remove him, uh, and they take him captive. So while he's being held captive, he's of course, is like, yes, okay, fine. I will do what you say. And then, stupidly, the army leaves, and uh, Benedict is like, no, I'm not doing any of that. And he sends out a, a public letter saying the king sent these guys to uh, you know, strong-arm me and force me to resign, and I'm not doing that. And it actually worked. Um People are like, well, that's ridiculous. The king shouldn't be doing that. And it actually, Benedict's popularity goes up um, with the the public, which you know, the public is the aristocracy. Um, he's, he he gains popularity. A bunch of his cardinals uh, start kind of coming back over to his side. Um, and in 1404, he sends a letter to try and restart the negotiations with the Roman Pope. So they're at, at this point where they're actually trying to to work it out. Um, and, and it seems at this point, like he is the, he does intend to hold up his end. And if he, if the Roman Pope will agree as well, that he will resign. Um, but now, uh, Boniface, the Roman Pope does not want to have anything to do with it because you remember, uh, he was 33 when, uh, when he took the seat. And so he's now what it's, uh, he's almost 50 and he's gotten used to that sweet, sweet Pope life. Hmm. Um, so he, he's like, no, I'm not having anything to, I, he doesn't want to negotiate. Um, but then he, uh, gets kidney stones and dies. What a way to go. Yeah. And, and how do they know it's a kidney stone back then? I think just the pain. I mean, have you ever had a kidney stone? Oh, they're painful. I have yeah. not, but I've heard about them. I've, I've had one and I think the symptoms are specific enough that uh, you could that a doctor would be able to diagnose it to a reasonable um, to a reasonable reasonable degree of of accuracy um, but yeah that's at least what it's what it's put down to is is kidney stones um, so Benedict Benedict is still uh, into trying to trying to solve things right um, the the Romans do not go along with the plan they go ahead and appoint another pope uh so now we have pope innocent the seventh in rome so it's 1405 and benedict has to start negotiations again with a new guy and uh the new guy is not very cooperative but that ends up not mattering very much because he dies <laughs> less than a year after his coronation <laughs> and now uh everybody's waiting and kind of seeing if benedict is gonna like be the first one to make the move and go ahead and step down but he doesn't 
Um, so the Romans appoint another guy, Gregory the Twelfth, and the merry-go-round goes around again. But this time, Gregory, his whole thing, like his number one campaign promise is ending the schism. Um, he sends a letter to Benedict and he's like, get over yourself. Let's figure this out. Benedict doesn't really like it, but he finally agrees that the, to, to meet and work it out. But of course, the issue of where they're going to meet becomes a thing because neither of them wants to, you know, give up position by, you know, appearing weak or meeting someplace where they can. And there's like back and forth about who's going to bring how many, uh, how many soldiers. Cause they're of course both going to bring an army to this Pope meeting. Um, but, uh, so they're going back and forth on this whole thing. And meanwhile, Gregory's popularity, uh, is, is quickly dissolving and the people of Rome start demanding that he be put on trial for, uh, nepotism and heresy and all the, all the classics. Um, and meanwhile, Benedict has lost the support, uh, the, the little bit of support that he got back from the French King because, when the French king's brother was assassinated, Benedict's reaction to the news that this guy's brother had been assassinated was to send a letter to the king asking why his now dead brother wasn't sending him money anymore. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's not how you maintain a friendship, man. By the way, I'm sorry about the death in your family, but send him the money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, I'm sorry about your brother, but speaking of your brother, he used to send me money. Yeah. Can I have money? All right. Um, While you're alive, send me his number. Send me his money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. So the king is like, no, fuck this guy, uh, and he announces that for the first time, the crown will remain neutral in the papal negotiations. So the Avignon Pope no longer has the full backing and support of the French King, which is the first time this whole time that the French King is basically, even though it, you know, he quote unquote says neutral, he's basically against the Avignon uh, Pope. So a council is convened in Pisa to determine a resolution. Neither of the Popes show up. <laughs> they got uh, lost. So... They took a wrong turn. <laughs> just yeah. like yeah no never mind um but the council goes on they're like okay you didn't show up you don't get to be part of the dis discussion you're both children neither of you are worthy of popal popal uh and so they declare both of those popes illegitimate unfit to lead and they elect a new pope yes now i got three popes so Pope Alexander V becomes the first Pisan Pope. Um, of course, neither of the other two abdicate. Uh, Alexander at this point has the most overall support and is seen as the most legitimate um, because, you know, people are like, well, you know, he was appointed by a fair council. and um, But then 10 months later, he died. Oh, bummer. <laughs> Whoever um, said religion was simple. I know. Uh, <laughs> he was replaced by John the Twenty Third, um, and in uh, in fourteen eleven, a new Holy Roman Emperor comes along, dude named Sigismund, which may be my favorite name in this whole story. Holy if I have Roman another Emperor. child, I'm gonna name him Sigismund. Yeah, <clears throat> um, and uh, he withdraws his support for Gregory, the Roman Pope. 
John, uh, like Alexander before him, was generally seen as the most supportive, uh, supported and uh, and most legitimate of the three popes. Um, Sigismund calls a meeting uh, the the Council of Constance, uh, saying that all three popes and all the cardinals and everybody need to show up um, so that we can end the schism. Um, but at this point, uh, John has become has become uh, accustomed to the the luxuries of papalhood and he doesn't want to step down so he tries to run away um he like jumps on a fishing boat and goes down the river and they have to chase him down um and uh so the emperor is like pissed at him um but they finally like they get him back they depose him um a couple months later uh gregory the roman pope finally resigns uh, but benedict still refuses to step down uh until 1417 uh in july of 1417 he is finally forcibly deposed and removed and on november 11th 1417 at long last uh pope martin v uh, is is crowned in rome and the papal schism has come to a close and that's it. That's the that's the whole story about uh, about the dueling popes of the 14th century. Whoa! <laughs> so <laughs> I, I took some notes okay. during this because my mind is just um, going crazy. Because you said a few things. You said I can't wait till there's a movie made out of this. Um, Wouldn't this be a great movie? Monty Python all the way. <laughs> that's true. Um, but yes, even a serious movie, yeah, it would still be great, but Monty Python would nail this. And then I just hear about some of the authoritarian actions that these guys take and how they have their own, uh, armies and they're negotiating who's going to bring how many people to these negotiations, the number mm -hmm. of people. And I'm just thinking of like El Chapo and Pablo Escobar. I mean, these guys are the original cartel. Yeah. The things that they got away with in the name of religion. Yeah, that is, uh, that's, that's an apt comparison. Uh, yeah, it really is like a couple of criminals having a meeting, uh, being like, yeah, all right, how many, how many bodyguards are you bringing with you? Mm -hmm. uh, how, how many guns are going to be in the room? Uh, and yeah, absolutely. so that all goes back to Chateau Neuf de Pop, and you call it Pope's Land, Pope's the, House, the Pope, the Pope's New House, the Pope's New House. And does the crest on the bottle have something to do with maybe the papal crest? Do you know uh, yeah, I think it's supposed to imitate the papal crown, the, the the big Pope hat. Okay, all right. Yeah, um, that's. I guess that's that is what it looks like. Yeah, I, that's what I've always assumed. I actually didn't look that up in preparing this this story, but yeah, that's what I've always uh, assumed that came from. Fantastic information about you know Chateau Neuf de Pop and how it all re relates to being part of the papal. I don't know. Yeah, and there's uh, semi-apocryphal stories about um, that you know that the. the the, the first Pope to, to move to Avignon did so because he loved the wine there so much. But I think that's like Chateauneuf de Pop tourism board stories. I don't know if there's any validity to it. Um, 
but uh but yeah it's a it's a cool little town um i've only been there once but uh it's just you know a little little village like an hour north of uh, of avignon um but yeah it's it's a very fun story i tell you it's 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 a great way to drink some wine yeah <laughs> well, yeah that's that what story. i thought well and i we'll, we'll see <laughs> i mean i don't know about you i, I i've only gotten through about a glass of wine uh, so far for for this recording um and i have definitely found that uh that there is a sweet spot for how much alcohol you consume while while podcasting uh i've got another show that i, I mentioned to you that's uh just a star trek watch and review show with a buddy of mine mm-hmm. and we did a very long recording where we watched several episodes and i was uh, drinking wine through the entire thing and i found the part i found the point where i'm too drunk to be podcasting <laughs> so what's your um background with history um it was my one of my minors in college and something that's always been uh, interesting to me with wine it has naturally uh integrated for me there's so much that is relevant to both ancient and recent history um that is relevant to how different places uh became the wine growing places that they are uh, obviously with my portfolio, like uh, everything that my company imports is new world. So there's a bunch of different, uh, like colonial histories and stuff like that. Uh, this, you know, the, the, like I said, the one about Chile is very interesting to me because while there has been wine growing in Chile for hundreds of years, Chile is to most people a relatively new, player on the wine scene and that is because um all during the pinochet regime there was very little access to chilean wine in the united states so it's only since the you know mid 90s that uh that they are no longer living in a military dictatorship and have a a relatively normal wine industry and we are starting to see those wines in the u.s again all right yeah it's been awesome yeah, thank you so much uh, for uh, for joining me. This yeah, was, indeed. Uh, this this has been a blast. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, it's been an honor. Yeah, once to be I... on somebody else's podcast. <laughs> You're the first. Oh, really? Yeah, he's had me. Well, I'm, yeah. Uh, As I get, yes, cheers. Cheers. Yeah. Um, um, I'm using our Jackson Hole Wine Club wine glasses. Uh, yeah, so listeners, if you want to hear some cool stories from uh, from cool people who have some connection to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, uh, check out the Jackson Hole Connection. And if you are in Jackson Hole and you need wine for your mouth hole, uh, <laughs> go, go to uh, go to, to the the wine loft. Uh, they have, I think, the best wine selection that I saw in Jackson. Uh, I would say we have the largest selection yeah. of wine in Jackson, and I'd like to say that we have the best selection as well. Yeah, there are, uh, there's a couple of nice, uh, nice, nice selections in Jackson. But yeah, you definitely have if if you need, if you want the best shot of finding whatever you're looking for, <laughs> that's definitely the place to look. Yeah, we we like it. Thank you, we appreciate it, Leo. And listeners, thank you for for joining me. And join me next time, whenever that is. Mm-hmm.